and I had nowhere else to turn. And I was scared, very scared, because I, you know, suicide thoughts were becoming more prominent each day. And that was scary, very scary. And just sitting there, I was, I was completely lost. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. All right. I want to welcome TJ Smith to the show. TJ, hey, thank you for joining us uh, with The Depression Files. Thank you uh, for having me on your podcast. Hey, I'd love to start just by uh, having you share with the listeners just a little bit about yourself personally. Well, I'm a 31-year-old male from uh, originally from uh, here in Canada. Um, currently live in just outside of Halifax, Nova Scotia. Um, I coach hockey. It's primarily what I do right now at the junior A level in Truro, Nova Scotia. I uh, just started my own business for people with mental health issues and companies with mental health issues. Uh, I consider myself a mental health consultant and I'm trying to work with organizations and, and companies that struggle with their mental health management for themselves and their employees. And um, I'm also a father to a five-year-old boy. I, he and his, uh, his mother and myself are split right now, but uh, everything's great in that, that area as well. So fantastic. I want to start, you know, I definitely want to hear more about the organization. I think that's incredible and uh, so cool that you've started that. Uh, but before we get there, can you just share with us your history uh, with the major depression? Yeah, no problem. Uh, looking back now, and symptoms probably started in my late teens, early 20s. Uh, but I got diagnosed with major depression, anxiety, and OCD in January of 2016. Um, it was a very difficult time for me. Uh, the few months leading up to actually getting diagnosed and going to the hospital and actually seeing a doctor and seeing somebody and talking about my struggles. Um, I think it started for me back in my late 20s, or sorry, late teens, early 20s, when I started moving away from home. I started to play hockey competitively. I put a lot of pressure on myself, things like that. And then over my 20s, uh, things kind of developed uh, in my life that I had no control over and I didn't know how to handle with. And my coping strategies weren't strong. I, I fell into a gambling addiction and, uh, you know, binge drinking on weekends, things like that really affected me. And uh, I always knew there was something wrong. I just didn't know what was wrong. It was like, I was very uneducated with mental health and mental illnesses until I actually uh, got diagnosed. And I had these symptoms, you know, hopelessness, guilty feelings. I, my appetite wasn't great. Uh, sleep was awful for me. I couldn't get to sleep at nights, and when I did, I'd sleep all day kind of thing. Um, and then I got to a point in my mid-20s where I was thinking, is life better off if I'm not around? And if I was dead, would it be better for my friends, my family, everybody involved? So um, I didn't take much into those thoughts initially, and then when they started persisting and started becoming more common, then I realized something might be an issue. And then it was probably in, in uh, 
the fall of 2015 where I hit rock bottom with a few things in my life. My ex-girlfriend left me and with her, my son went with her. Uh, work was getting stressful. I was coaching hockey and we weren't doing well, so that was stressful. And then I started diving back into my coping strategies, what I consider the negative coping strategies, the the, the gambling and, and binge drinking and, and a bit of womanizing was uh, all releases from my demons. And then uh, I finally had my, I guess, my breakdown in uh, in December of 2015. And at that point, it was time for me to finally go to the hospital and uh, talk to somebody about what's going on in my life. So when you went to the hospital, that was when you first uh, had any kind of diagnosis? Yeah, I honestly, all these signs and symptoms and things I've been through in my life, I just, I thought it was okay or standard. And, uh, and then when I eventually went to the hospital and spoke to a doctor and he, uh, asked me questions and as we were going down the checklists for symptoms and signs of depression, I was, I hit every one of them. So, uh, then I kind of realized yeah, something it's more serious than I thought. So how long would you say you were living with depression with some pretty significant symptoms before you reached out for help? I would say 10 years, at least in silence. I, I done what I could to hide it. I, I tell people, I, you know, I used to wake up in the mornings. When I woke up in the mornings, I would brush my teeth and then I'd put my mask on and go about my business for the rest of the day. Yeah. So you, uh, I heard you say you hit it, but I also heard you say like you just kept kind of plugging away and weren't even really sure that anything was wrong with you. Do I have that right? Yeah, it was kind of, I was, I, I was unsure what was going on. Like I had these symptoms that I knew that I had, I kind of knew weren't right, but I didn't know what it was, what it was, you know, pertaining to it. Was it depression or, or whatnot? I had no clue, honestly, until about 2012, I saw a documentary about depression with athletes and kind of, it was easy for me to relate to athletes because I was, I was an athlete myself and I coach and I was like, well, well this seems really, really familiar. And the documentary spoke to me and I, then I started doing some more research and stuff on, on depression. Yeah. So I've read some research that says typically people live for about 10 years with depression before seeking help. That is, mm -hmm. that is challenging. Hey, can you bring us a little bit deeper into your symptoms? Like when you say you couldn't sleep, what was that like? Were you, were you well, sleeping just a few hours a night or how, how much sleep were you getting? I wasn't getting much at all. Uh, maybe two to four to five. If I was lucky. Uh, my, my mind would race at night. It'd be, I would be lying down in bed and my mind would be just every thought possible, good, bad, or indifferent. And I couldn't control those thoughts. And it just made me stay up and, you know, worry about them with my anxiety and some were negative thoughts and scary at times. Uh, I don't remember in the last 10 years going to bed before midnight. So, uh, I, people ask me if I'm a night hour. Yeah, I am, but uh, you know, I don't, it's not by choice. I'm just like, you just can't get to sleep at nights. Uh, doctor recommended me, uh, Zopicone for my sleeping and that's been helpful, but it's also a, an addictive drug if you use it too much. And it's, uh, it gives me a fuzzy feeling when I wake up. Like I don't remember going to sleep. Like the, the drug really knocks me out and I don't remember actually falling to sleep and waking up sometimes can be difficult. So the sleep is a huge, huge one for me. Um, when I was really, really depressed before I went to the hospital, the appetite, I didn't eat, I don't know, go a couple days without eating. And that was, you know, obviously there's something wrong. If you're not hungry and you, you need food in your system. Did you lose a lot of weight through that? I think I lost about 10, 12 pounds. Yeah. Uh -huh. Which was a lot for me. Uh, I'm 
six foot two and I'm pretty about two fifteen and I was down almost two hundred pounds. So wow. that was a uh, that was yeah, it was uh it was bad for me actually. And I remember when I first went to the hospital, like they were trying to give me you know, those insure milkshakes were, you know, right trying to su- supplement you. So and and then those things were the physical things I really noticed, but the, the thoughts of hopelessness, like no no future, no, had zero hope about anything. Just like I was in a rut, spinning my wheels and couldn't get out of it. And uh, then the thoughts of suicide and, and taking my life became really, really thorough. And they would get more descriptive and how I would do it and things. Uh, and I remember one time I was in the garage and I was parking my vehicle and I looked up in the rafters and I saw a, uh, a simple vacuum hose. And, you know, my first thought wasn't, where's the vacuum or I can use this for something of good. I decided that I could use that hose if I wanted to, to hook it up to my vehicle and, and turn on the ignition and close the garage door and I can end all this misery. Um, that was, that was a big moment for me in my life to realize, yeah, to, you, you need to, you need to see somebody. And that was in December of 2015 as well. And you, you didn't reach out at that time or did you? No, I, I was still uh, hiding it. Yeah. yeah. I thought it was, I don't know if it was something I thought I could fight on my own or that I hope it was going to pass. Um, my twenties, I tell a lot of people were very blurry for me. Yeah. Um, I don't remember a whole lot about it. Just, you know, the high moments, but the, a lot of bad, bad things I've done just from my behavior and stuff, uh, in my twenties, I just, it was a complete blur for me. Like weekends, I would, uh, I would binge drink on the weekends. It was a thing to do here in, in Atlanta, Canada, unfortunately. And from Fridays to Sundays, I would, uh, get so drunk. I'd pat, you know, blackout basically for three days and not remember anything. And then, you know, Sundays would be my worst days of the week, obviously, because, you know, the alcohol doesn't help the depression. And, and it was very, very, uh, descriptive suicidal thoughts then. Right. Just how bad did the, the gambling get as well? I mean, were you, were you gambling away with money you needed at the time? Oh yeah. The gambling, gambling was the, the big addiction. I know not everybody uh, develops an addiction with their mental health or mental illness issues, but uh, the gambling was mine. Um, I know people that suffer from depression and get into alcohol or get into drugs. Gambling was my addiction. It was my getaway from uh, the life that, you know, the demons I was struggling with inside. And it got to the point where I would, yeah, I would lose money that I didn't have, you know, whether it was rent or paying some groceries. And I, I got to the point where I had to borrow money for some friends. And, uh, and you know, I feel awful about that. The only thing the gambling done was I wanted to make me feel good about myself for a little bit, but it got to the point where the addiction took over and I started just, you know, winning what didn't matter and, and losing started happening more and made me feel worse and worse. And it just, it, it spiraled from there. I think that that seems pretty typical to the men I speak to who end up with some type of addiction, right? At first it's like, it, it feels good and it's a short term fix and then it just becomes a major issue and just feeds the depression same with drugs, the alcohol, and and other types of addictions men end up with. So did you, I know you ended up uh, in the psychiatric unit. Was that uh, due to an attempt of a suicide attempt? That that was, a, well, my parents came to Nova Scotia. They were still back in Newfoundland, and they came to Nova Scotia because they were worried. Uh, they weren't quite sure what was going on either, but they, they knew something was up with their son. How did so they, they know? Were you were you telling them little bits, or were they just out of touch with you? I think they kind of knew through my sister, through my ex-girlfriend, because they knew uh, that wasn't going well. The breakup, I really struggled with that. Um, you know, the whole thought of losing 
your girlfriend and then your son along with her. And, you know, I absolutely love my son. So that was a struggle for me to deal with mentally as well. Um, but I was supposed to go in for uh, some blood work and the blood work facility was closed and my parents were adamant and pushed me. Why don't you check, you know, get a second opinion while you're here from the doctor. So they pushed me and pushed me and I was very resistant still. And then I finally went and spoke to the doctor there and that's when he said, we got two options to send you back on your way, which, you know, wasn't accomplishing anything for me. And the second option was to stay in a psychiatric unit. And which when he told me that was very scary because as I tell people now, you think of that, I had no prior knowledge to a psychiatric unit. And my thoughts are what we see in the movies are I might get put in a straight jacket and put in a padded room. And there's a lot of uncertainty there. And it was very scary for me, but the doctor educated me quickly on it and my family and we decided that was the best thing to do what was it that made the doctor start talking to you about the psychiatric unit he he questioned me on on my on a few things and he determined yeah it was depression Uh, he didn't couldn't determine at that point how severe it was and he he established a relationship with me and I felt trustworthy with this guy, um, which, which was huge for me. He seemed like he actually cared about me. So that, that was great for me at that point. Cause I felt like I was the only guy in the world and nobody cared about me. And I was, you know, it was very, very dark spot. So he, he, he explained it to me in a way that he it understood for me and how it would help me and my family. Again, I was very resistant, but he made it sound like the place to be and very essential to my mental health and getting better. So were you, it sounds like you must have, once he established the trust with you, um, it sounds like you were really honest with him, I'm guessing, sharing your suicidal thoughts, sharing the the weight loss and and all of the other symptoms. Oh, absolutely. Uh, He, 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 he established that trust right away. And I was quite open to tell him every, I told him everything. My parents were in the room as well. Um, I think he invited them in, which was fine. And it was very difficult for them to hear that. I think there were some tears shed. And no one wants to hear their son or daughter talking about suicide and things of that nature. So the trust and the communication was great. And you know, he, I, I, he's a, he was a big part of, you know, saving my life. I, I tell him that. He, you know, he shrugs it off. But I tell him that, you know, you were very, very instrumental. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. It sounds like that was actually the first time that you were able to take the mask off and and be honest about it with somebody. Oh, absolutely. Uh, again, before that really didn't know what to think of what was going on in my life. And yeah, then, then our, when he opened up and helped me open up, it was great. It really helped. Do you remember how that felt at the time? Like I know in hindsight, that's great. You, you were able to be upfront and get the help you needed in the beginning. Was it, was it still really challenging? What was going through your mind? And was this the first time that you actually realized, yeah, this is, this is depression. I have a mental illness. That was definitely the first time I actually, I guess, talking to a doctor about it and him confirming it was, yeah, it was really scary. I look back and I, I try to see myself there sitting in a chair talking to him. And I was just a, a very lost young man and I had nowhere else to turn. And I was scared, very scared because I, you know, suicide thoughts were becoming more prominent each day. And that was scary, very scary. And just sitting there, I was I was completely lost. And he kind of gave me some guidance. And you know, he, again, he was he was phenomenal helping me. Yeah, 
That's that sounds great. Um, you know, it's interesting when you mention how your parents were in the room and of course how difficult it is for them to hear something like that. And it makes me think back on my story where there were one or two times when my wife was with me at a psychiatric appointment and she was watching me fill out the little questionnaire and it would be asked about like how many times have you been thinking about suicide? And when when she saw the numbers, I think uh, it was a little scary and eye opening for her, too. So I can relate to having, you know, family around while you're sharing. And I'm really glad that, you know, you didn't let that stop you from being honest. Even knowing how difficult that was for your parents, they probably really respected the honesty. And I'm sure they care a ton about you. Yeah. And, and prior to that, uh, not that we had a bad relationship with my parents. We just didn't talk very much. It was probably once a week. And they just kind of checking in, see how things were. And, and the relationship wasn't like it is today. Now we talk every day, basically. And they, you know, ever since that moment, I think they've been checking in on their son and, and vice versa. And, and the relationship has blossomed since then. Oh, that's fantastic. So from that appointment, how long of a period was there before you actually went to the psychiatric unit? And once you were there, how long were you there? Well, I went right up. Actually, it was outpatients that I went and seen this doctor and they admitted me right there on the spot. And For I inpatient? Up, inpatient right away. Yeah. I went upstairs. It was, a, I think it was the second floor and I went right in there and um, the nurse basically done what the doctor did downstairs. She questioned me and asked me all these thoughts about suicide and do I have a plan and, and things of that nature. And I was honest with her. I didn't quite have a plan or a letter. I always would decide if I was going to do commit suicide or take my life, I would have a letter. Uh, I never got to that point, but you know, everything but that basically. And when I got up there, it was, you know, it was very new to me and I was trying to take it all in, but I was also trying to figure out what I'm doing here. And I was, I was confused and I uh, was scared. And I was actually, I was hungry because I didn't eat nothing. And I, it was a lot of, a lot of different feelings and emotions and thoughts going through my head. Did your parents uh, go to the unit with you or was it kind of like goodbye mom and dad? I'm heading up. No, they they were allowed to come up. Uh, when you walk into the unit, there's uh, just a few couches and and cafeteria tables, and we just sat there until someone came speak to us, and they just kind of stayed there until they figured out what they were going to do with me and give me a room and things of that like that until visiting hours were over that night. And did you know at that point how long you were going to be there, or was that just a complete unknown? Honestly, I thought it would be like a night type of thing, like they okay, we'll keep you in for one night and put send you on your way. Uh, that was not the case. I think the first time I went th three different times, I admitted myself. Sorry, twice I admitted myself. That time the doctor admitted me. Uh, the first time was about three weeks, three weeks stay. And then I got out and I think it was about two to three weeks of being out on my own that I had to go back. Symptoms started arising. The medication I was on didn't work or it weared off time, so to speak. And then the last time I admitted myself was I was in Halifax and I got drunk with my buddy and I was going to jump off the bridge there in Halifax and uh, and a couple of my buddies called my doctor in Yarmouth and told me told them that TJ was having a rough weekend and I decided okay uh, I'll go back to the hospital and uh, that was my third time so about about five to six weeks total time frame each time was to the same unit yes it was yeah it's only one unit there uh, okay. Yeah, so the nurses, I, I must say, they were phenomenal. Uh, they were absolutely awesome and understanding, which was very helpful. And for our listeners, can you describe, like, what was a typical day there? Was it structured? Were you in classes? And, 
learning more about your symptoms and, and depression or was this essentially just suicide watch and you were in your room? Uh, so yeah, that's no problem. Uh, well, I'll just start in the morning. So 7am they would wake you up, they come in and wake you. Uh, and that's the only time of the day you would see your doctor. So he would come in and do a quick assessment on you, check up on you, do a few, ask you a few questions and then you would, he would go about his business and do his job for the day. When you say doctor, is that the psychiatrist or a psychologist? Yeah. Uh, psychiatrist. Okay. Yeah. Dealing with the my, meds. Yeah. Okay. So he came in and he would check up and do his quick assessment and then he would go about his business and, and I wouldn't see him no more rest of the day until the next, you know, next morning at 7 a.m. Uh, the nurses were there 24-7, of course. And then we get up and have breakfast. And then, yeah, there was some scheduled programming throughout the days uh, from Monday to Friday. There was people there doing uh, coping classes or we done some mindfulness classes. Uh, you know, it was things of that nature to help us. Uh, one thing I really liked looking back now is they took the technology away from me. So there was no cell phones, iPhones, laptops, anything of that, which was awesome because it really allowed me to work on myself. Right. Uh, I find I find we get caught up with the technology these days with the uh, on the laptops or cell phones we're always on it and we can't really connect with ourselves or with other people. So they take the technology away from you, which was great. I done a lot of reading there and, and I started journaling there. And at night times, it's, you know, you, your lunch was at twelve. You and the same with supper around five ish, and then visiting hours were four to ten p.m. And my parents stayed in Nova Scotia as long as they could and they visited every day and then basically that time is free time you know spend however you want but you got to stay in a unit and i played a lot of cribbage and done a lot of puzzles with my parents and watched some tv and it's tough sometimes connecting with other patients a couple got to connect with and communicate with and still friends with today um but it's it was a it was a standard day and you know, with a few classes, which really helped. And then at 11 o'clock, they give you your medication and then they put you in your room, which was new for me because I never went to bed before 12. So right, get, right. getting, that was actually probably the trickiest part was going to my room at 11 and, you know, trying to get to sleep. So when I got in my room, that's when I done a lot of writing. At I least could, it was 11. In my mind, I was thinking it'd be more like nine or so. <laughs> yeah. So, so was, um, when you did the programming and different uh, learning, had learning opportunities, those were required, I'm guessing, right? You couldn't say, ah, I'm just going to skip that one and stay in your room, or could you? I think you could have skipped them if you made up a good enough excuse. Uh, okay. But I, I was there for the right reasons. I wanted to get better. Right. So any opportunity I could take to better myself by going to these classes, which I've never, ever been a part of, and learning something new and learning more about myself and my illness, I took full advantage of. That's fantastic. That's that is very similar to the attitude I took when I checked myself into a partial hospitalization program. And so every once in a while I would meet, you know, an occupational therapist or somebody that I really didn't click with, but I just said, all right, no matter what, I will get some little nugget out of this class mm -hmm. because I need to focus on me and I need to get better. So rather than, you know, whine and complain about somebody who I didn't think was the best fit for their role, I just always thought there's got to be something I can get out of this. Um, how many people were in the unit and and how many people were in groups with you then? Uh, it varied each time. I think the, I think they have oh, about 12 to 15 rooms. So there was never any more than 15 or 14 people there. Uh, most, I think there might have been 10 of us there on the unit. Uh, at least maybe four 
five of us. Um, yeah, so there was it varied each time, and everybody had different symptoms. It yeah, was, I was just know. gonna ask: Did they also have different diagnoses? Do you think? Yes, definitely. Uh, I remember one young man; he was a bit younger than me, and he had schizophrenia, and he sometimes he struggled with that, and he had to get put into the I don't know if you want to call it a locked room or under watch. Um, there was it was it was a it was fascinating for me because it was very new to me, and all this you know learning about my mental illnesses and. Other people's mental illnesses were new, and there was people young and old there. You know, there was a young woman there that I met. She uh, lost her lost her child in her womb, and that was difficult for her. And he told me his story. He uh, he was a trucker and made you know nice money for most of his life, and then one day it all came to an end, and he uh, didn't know how to cope with it. And then he found himself in the psychiatric unit, and yeah, it was, it's and there was a teacher there. She struggled with uh, bipolar. And I got to understand what she was going through and her story. So yeah, it was it was a wide range of uh, people there and their stories and their struggles. A lot of learning, it sounds like for you. Oh yeah, it was yeah, it was yeah, definitely a lot of learning. Yeah, this is uh, a little bit. Uh, I want to take you back a little bit because when you first mentioned your diagnoses, I think you mentioned OCD as well. And I'm wondering if you could share with us how your OCD manifests. I don't know where it manifests. Uh, just the few things the doctor and I talked about, kind of so, that the symptoms of it or signs of it, so to speak. Um, one, I chew my fingernail. I got three or I got well, I got ten fingernails, but uh, right now I only have eight. Them. I really chew on them, uh, and something I've been doing for ten years. I chew on them, but wouldn't let them back. I wouldn't let them grow back. They're really actually down to the, the white part, the nubs. So it's a, that was one thing that I really became obsessive about. Out uh, of compulsion kind of goes back to my gambling right. and my addiction. It kind of goes hand in hand there, I've realized. And in my OCD, other things I have, you know, repetitive in certain rituals or things I have to do uh, in certain areas of my life, just, it, you know, it makes no sense probably to anybody else, but it makes perfect sense to me or I, I feel like I have to do it in order for things to work out. So right. um, OCD is not too bad. I, I'm pretty good with that. I'm pretty managed for that. The main things were, was definitely the, the major depression I got diagnosed with. Right. What kind of tools do you use now to stay healthy? Um, I am, I'm currently doing some psychotherapy. Uh, I meet, I still meet with a, a therapist about once every four to six weeks, a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So we're working on CBT, cognitive behavior therapy and a act acceptance and commitment therapy which is kind of new and could you describe that i haven't heard of that uh i'm still i'm reading a book on it actually to be honest with you it's okay. uh it's the, the author i believe is from australia and it's about a six step and it's very similar to cbt and it's you know acceptance and commitment therapy and i'm just through the first part is called diffusion and it, it works with your thoughts and your feelings and accepting them for what they are understanding them and you know and then making a commitment to getting better and things like that. So the, those things really connect with me because I really understand them and I believe in them. So right. those have been really good. Um, I was on medications for a while. I actually stopped this past summer and I've been doing really, really well. Uh, first coming down and coming off the medications were tough, but now they're great. Everything's going great. Uh, I still journal, try to keep that. That I tell people that's like my therapist. So I can write all my thoughts and feelings out on a piece of paper and let it all out. Right. But I don't, I don't have, you know, someone judging me or 
having a judgmental look or any feedback at that point. So it's always nice to get, you know, your thoughts and feelings out. Yeah, that's fantastic. I I journal a fair amount as well. Um, You know, I want to jump back to the meds for a second. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am certainly no doctor at all, but after three stays in the psych unit, it sounds like you got off medication quite quickly. And was your psychiatrist okay with that? Or were there lengthy conversations around that? Well, it goes back to the trust with him. Anything he suggested, I was okay with right from the get-go. So if he said, let's do this, and I said, I don't know much about it, but I trust you, uh, we did it. So we, I, he, he had me on meds. He put me on Celexa to start, and that it, uh, even some Ativan for my anxiety, that was not very, very helpful. He told me, you know, after several trials of different drugs, he told me that I have a high tolerance to drugs. So he put me on Remeron too for a little bit. That didn't, you know, didn't work. So after all these trial and errors, and you know, he finally concluded that I do have major depression. Um, we decided ECT treatment was going to be the, the way to go, and he eventually put me on the drug that goes hand in hand with ECTs. Um, my pronunciations are not is anaphralin. Um, it's an older drug, drug developed in the fifties for tuberculosis. And what he told me was he gave it to these patients with TB and they would have uh, a lot of them would be getting happy mood feelings. So they, they, you know, tailored it into a antidepressant and they go hand in hand with your ECT treatments and that's a tricyclic drug. And that's what I was on. And yeah, I think I was on depressants before we came to that point. Right. For our listeners, can you explain ECT, electric convulsive therapy, right? And I know several guys who have been through that. And I know that many people, when they hear it, they just think of something like the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is what I hear a lot of people refer to. And I know it's it's not at all like that these days. Can you share what that process was like? Yeah, no problem. It's, it's ironic that you mentioned that, that scene in the movie because I'm, I'm using that scene to hopefully, you know, uh, dilute the stigma a little bit in some of my school presentations. But uh, it, it sounds scary on the surface, but deep down it's not that scary. Uh, basically, they, they bring you, they put you in your gown, your hospital gown, put you on a stretcher, and then they uh, bring you into this room. It's just a nurse there at that point. And then she starts hooking up the EKG to make sure that's all good and sticks an IV in your wrist. And then my psychiatrist came in, and what he does, he sticks electrodes uh, over my head, my temples, behind my ears, a couple on my chest, and a couple on my my ankle, my left foot, I believe it was. And he would talk to me and and set me up. And then the anesthesiologist would come in, and they come in and they leave pretty quick, apparently. The, the, The psychiatrist tells them who I am and what kind of drugs they used last time to put me asleep. And they would stick two to three different drugs in me, and they would put me to sleep. And then they would induce a seizure when I was asleep. And then the doctor would turn on the ECT machine and send electric current through my brain. And basically, it rewires the circuitry in your in your brain. Uh, there's a lot of research out around ECTs, but it's still there's no definite reason or how it affects uh, your depression mental illness it just they know it works but they don't know why it works uh so it's been great for me um then it takes about five minutes the whole procedure so i'm told 
and then I wake up about half an hour after being put to sleep and, you know, I'm a little fuzzy. My head's, you know, your head obviously hurts a little bit, but uh, then, you know, you're in recovery for a little bit and for, you know, a couple hours and then that's it. You go about your business again. And you're, you're okay from that point on throughout that day. You're not groggy or um, anything like that at all. And I didn't from not from the treatment. I was mostly from lack of sleep because I would get very anxious the night before mm. because I, I was excited to do my ECT treatments because of how they made me feel. They made me feel so much better. Uh, it was awesome, awesome feeling. So I was really excited and anxious. It was like Christmas Eve. I was, just couldn't wait to get up for the next morning and, and get to the hospital and do my treatment. So lack of sleep was probably the reason I was groggy. But right. I, would, I, would, I would bounce back pretty good after. So how many times uh, have you had ECT and is it something you're continuing with? No, I, I've stopped this ECT treatments oh, about eight to 10 months ago. So basically when I was in the hospital, it started and first starting out, there was about two a week and then we whittled our way down to one a week, then one every two weeks, then one every three weeks. Then we went once per month and these once per month treatments were considered maintenance treatments. So I, in total, I done about 15 to 16 and my doctor at that point was like, he would question me and, and ask how things are and et cetera, et cetera. And he decided, okay, we don't need to do them anymore. So yeah, I think in total it was about 16. In what kind of length of time? It started March, 2016. And I think I, it was, it may have ended, uh, maybe about 10 months after that. So yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe January, 2017 around then. Yeah. And it sounds like, um, yeah, you just, you, uh, it worked wonders for you. It sounds like essentially. Oh, absolutely. Uh, biggest reason, like I said, I'm not eating my medication right now and, and the ECTs were, were phenomenal for me. And now everybody might have a different experience, but for me, they, you know, I think the biggest impact on my mental health. I know one guy who, um, had ECT and he described it as just kind of a reset, almost like a reset, hitting the reset <laughs> button on your brain. And that's what some of the literature I've been reading has said the same. It's like a reset. Um, I, I tell people, because I'm trying to help eliminate the stigma, I tell people that my ECTs were my chemotherapy. So if I had cancer, I would get chemotherapy. And that's what my ECTs were for my depression. So I'm trying to, you know, relate to, to diseases. And like I said, people, if you got asthma, you got a puffer. And if you got diabetes, you got insulin. Well, I, I had depression, so I, have, uh, I had ECT treatments. That's a really good point. I know one of the tweets that I send out fairly frequently is nobody questions you when you're taking insulin for diabetes, right? And nobody mm -hmm. questions you for heart disease medicine. So why question people who, who choose to take medicine for their mental illness? Mm, exactly. So quite a story. It sounds like um, in addition to some of the tools you were talking about with staying healthy, um, you also, you know, you mentioned the mindfulness. Are there tools like that that you got from the hospitalizations that you still use? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the mindfulness, again, I didn't know a whole lot or anything about prior to my experience in the hospital. Uh, one counselor, she was about my age, and she, you know, I really connected, which was great. And she gave me a lot of tools, and she introduced me to mindfulness and some books that I read. And I started understanding those a little bit better and how they helped me. And, and I started doing that uh, mindfulness, things like taking time for yourself and, and meditating a little bit. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a Buddhist uh, master yet, but I do self and take time out of the day and try to relax and just, you know, think, 
you know, take my thoughts for what they are and understand them, accept them and uh, go from there. Sounds like that'll go hand in hand with some of the therapy that you mentioned as well. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. Yeah, it's very helpful. Yeah, it's nice when things like that come together, right, where you can see the connections between the mindfulness that you enjoy, the therapy, um, and making all those connections. And it, it, it just provides, I think, kind of a synergy towards recovery and staying healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Is that book I was reading about uh, ACT, and that's one of the first things that you mentioned. It was talking about in Western our Western culture, we don't really do that mindfulness. It's not a common practice. We don't take time for ourselves and and reflect inward and and develop our own thoughts and you know things of that nature. So I would love to talk about some of the work you're doing around mental health. And I know um, I believe the the organization that you founded is called Battle Health Consulting, right? Is that correct? Yep. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, I want to start just by saying your uh, the website is incredible. I mean, it's very user friendly. It's got a wealth of information. Um, so good job with the website. But tell us tell us a bit about Battle Health Consulting and how you came about it. Well, I was going through a period of trying to find employment, and I was just applying for jobs that I was technically qualified for, but I wasn't getting many replies. And and but I wasn't really motivated for these jobs either i was just you know trying to find work so to speak and then i decided well uh, maybe i can do something for myself and for other people with mental health i have a very very sincere passion for mental health and helping people so i uh my major is bachelor of commerce and i majored in human resources management and i also coach hockey as i, I mentioned earlier and i took my experience with mental health and I combined the three, and I decided that, well, maybe I can help people by being a consultant. So at first, be a peer support mentor, basically, for people that go through the same struggles that I were going through. Um, then I realized there's a lot of competition out there sometimes with counselors, therapists, psychiatrists, psychiatrists, and colleges. And uh, so that didn't get off as well as I thought. So then I kind of redirected my uh, goals and my vision and I said, maybe I can help businesses and companies because, you know, there's so many stats out there why businesses are struggling with people missing work or being at work and not doing anything and, and, and things like that. So here in Nova Scotia, there's not a whole lot of consulting or support for employees in companies that struggle with mental illness. So I decided to take my experiences and my education and that I would you know, be consulting for businesses to help with their employees' mental health and hopefully the uh, EAP of some sort to some companies. Uh, also, I'm uh, speaking in schools to students, going to high schools, junior high, uh, being a speaker and talking to the students about my experience and everything I've been through and, you know, some information, facts, uh, and resources on mental health and mental illnesses. Here in Atlanta, Canada, there's not a whole lot of resources for young kids, and I'm really big on early intervention with mental illness. So speaking to the kids has been really, really passionate for me. And I'm, you know, I spoke to in October, I spoke to about 800 kids in over three or four different schools, which was, which was big for me because, you know, that's what I really want to do. And this month I got a few more schools lined up and yeah, it's been, it's been very good, busy and it's been awesome actually so far. Oh, that's great. I think your idea of working with organizations and businesses, and I read on, on the website, it's partly working with HR, making sure that they recognize kind of mental illnesses and mental um, health challenges and struggles that employees may be going through, figuring out how to support them and uh, 
helping provide solutions. It sounds like it's fantastic. I think we need a lot more of that. And as you mentioned, there's a ton of data out there that shows how much mental illness impacts the, the cost of mental illness support, but also the, the cost on the economy when people miss so many days. And it's not just their own mental health. Sometimes it's those of the family members as well that they're taking care of. Yeah, it, it affects everybody. I think the stat, the most recent stat I've seen in Canada is one in four people suffer some type of mental illness. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, if you want to look at it that way, it's 25% of the population and a lot of those people are working. So it, it, it affects a lot of people, definitely. Yeah. When it, was it that you started the the uh, company? May May 2017 was when I started throwing the idea around with my family and some friends. And then I think I finally got established as a business in June 2017. Okay. So it's, only, it's only been five, six months, yeah. Right, right. And what would you say about challenges of starting up your own, own company? There's a lot of work uh, to start out. Um, especially when you're doing it yourself. For me, I had trouble getting loans because it's funny how it works. It goes back to my gambling addictions and spending money I didn't have. I remember having a credit card years ago and I just I, I abused it and didn't ever pay it off and things like that and developed some bad credit with other companies and then uh, it's tough getting a loan. So a lot of it's doing a lot of work and with not much funding right now. So that's been a big struggle for me. Um, learning the business, learning the business world. I, I've been to school and I get it all and understand it, but when you're actually out there in it, it's different. And and marketing was not a strong suit for me, but trying to market what I'm marketing. It's you know, mental health and mental illness issues. And a lot of people don't understand that or how it looks in their company or do they even need it. So, so it's, you know, it's a lot of struggle there with the marketing behind mental health and mental illness. I spoke to several people about this. I don't know how you market, you know, that, everybody affected by mental illnesses in one way or another and they need good mental health. So that's been probably the three biggest struggles for me so far. Right. And how about, uh, largest successes so far? And I would imagine speaking in front of all those kids that you mentioned, 800 kids, a presentation in front of them is one of them. How about some other, uh, other huge successes that you felt? Well, the school speakings have been great and now I'm finding more people are asking me to come to their schools or help out with some kind of project, which has been great. Uh, the school speak speaks have been awesome. I remember I went to one, I spoke in front of about 500 students, and I opened up the floor to questions after I was done, and there were some general questions. But the, what caught me off guard and was overwhelming for me and also reaffirmed a value for other people was a few kids stayed behind, and they came up to me personally and told me their story. And, um, you know, some people still didn't understand what was going on, but some kids came up to me. I remember one boy and, and he was, you know, I'm six, two and he was probably six, three, six, four. And he was almost in tears. And he told me that two days ago he was thinking about suicide and he was in a real bad spot. And he said he was looking for a sign. And then he told me hearing me speak was his sign. So that, that was very empowering and, and humbling for me. And yeah, it's huge. Of, yeah. It was like, wow, that's powerful stuff. And, and I was just, so happy he opened up to me, you know, 16 year old boy. It wasn't easy for him to say what he said. And, and that was very, very overwhelming, but in a positive way for me. And it's also reaffirmed like I'm, I'm on the right road and I'm on the right journey to helping people. Absolutely. It's moments like that, that make all of the, the work and effort that you're putting into it. So worth it. 
Yeah, that's more meaning more meaningful to me than the monetary. I'm not out to make big money from it or nothing like that. I'm here to help people. And, you know, once you hear something like that, it's like, okay, I'm doing something right. Yeah. Do you find uh, the work therapeutic for you? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it is very, gives me a purpose and, and meaning in life, so to speak, and, you know, and it drives me to do better. And like every day when I, when I get into my work, it's, I'm into it. And I never have been like that for a while. And it's very, yeah, it's, it's very good for my coping. It's a, it's a positive coping strategy for me. And knowing that I might be helping people, it's, it even drives me more to, you know, learn more and be better for myself and to help people and share my story and do whatever I can to, uh, to help other people. And if I remember correctly, you offer some services via Skype and so forth so that people don't even have to be in your town, correct? Yeah. And, and uh, here in Nova Scotia and, and, and a lot of land in Canada, it's very rural. Uh, there's a few major centers throughout Canada, but it's very, very rural. I come from a rural community, so I do offer that if 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 people need that service as well, because uh, you know it's it's lacking in a lot of our area. So, how do people get to your website or find out more about you if they're interested in utilizing your services? Well, they can go to my website. It's www.battlehealthconsulting.com, and I use Battle Health because it you know fighting a mental illness is a battle. So that's how I kind of came up with the name. Um, also on Twitter uh, at TJ Smith. 61 and i'm on facebook if you type in my name and then i have a, a business page connected to that and my instagram so i'm trying to market and connect to people uh, the social media way and yeah that's the main website is like you said you've, you looked at it and uh, i had a couple of buddies help me with that so that was great too okay Fantastic. So I would urge people to reach out for TJ Smith, utilize his services, you you know, have him present for you and so forth. Uh, before we sign off, I'm wondering if you have any other final kind of suggestions, words of uh, suggestions, advice, words of hope for anybody who might be struggling out there listening to the show. My advice would be if you're struggling with some kind of illness and you're not sure, please go talk to somebody about it before it's too late. Uh, I was fortunate enough to do that before it was too late. Uh, I really believe if I didn't go see the doctor when I did, I probably would have killed myself and not be here. So I know it's a very tough step to take and it can be very hard. I, I understand that and I can empathize with that. But do do it if you feel you need to do it. Reach out to somebody, a friend, family member, uh, someone you trust and go see somebody and take the steps to getting better because it is possible to get better. Uh, at first when I got diagnosed and admitted to the hospital I thought it was the end of the world and I'm never getting out of this and two years later now almost uh, since I've been admitted and I'm the happiest I've been in my life due to a lot of treatment and help from others and work on myself so it's it's the, the big step and the first step and the hardest step was actually going to see somebody to get help yeah I think that's great advice and interesting coming from you I think it's so important. And you had talked earlier about how you lived with it for 10 years, right? And imagine if you knew that you could have reached out for help and had taken uh -huh. that step earlier, you may have avoided some of the the gambling problems, some of the drinking problems and so forth. And uh, so great advice and, and reach out early, right? I mean, if you're wondering if something's going on because you aren't able to sleep at night or you're all of a sudden you've lost your appetite, like you said, reach out for the help. It's there. Probably a good place to start. Maybe the family doctor, I would think. 
Yeah, definitely. If you, you get access to them for sure. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, TJ, for your time. And really, I, I wish you the best of luck with, uh, with your organization, Battle Health Consulting. It sounds fantastic. It's early on, so um, I'm sure there will be bumps along the way. And I hope you uh, just continue to roll with it. It's incredible work you're doing. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. And like you said, it is early and I do have some bad days, but that's, that's part of starting a business. So I'm quite positive going forward here. Great. All right. Well, thank you again and uh, make sure you stay healthy. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.